Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here this morning. I want to invite you to take your copy of the Bible and go to Matthew chapter 1, would you? We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Matt took us through the 17th verse. We're going to start with 18 and round out the chapter. And I'm going to encourage you, even as I am now, as we go to, pre- um, to preach, that we continue in the spirit of that appeal uh, that we just prayed together, that the Lord would meet with us. Uh, we don't want to detach from our need for the Lord to help us, that he would bring light in this. And so as we open the word of God, as we hear it read, as we seek to see it applied, and certainly as we see our Savior in this text, we, uh, we so desire the Lord's help. This, it's texts like this. These are the reason that men go into ministry, is to have an opportunity for, uh, for a full hour just to talk about Jesus. And we will today, uh, the Christ child. As you know, uh, Luke's account, uh, which is the more familiar of the narrative accounts of Jesus' uh, birth, um, that focuses on Mary's experience. This is Joseph's experience. And so you've likely read ahead and kind of see Uh, essentially where we're going. It feels like we should have some greenery or something or poinsettia or something uh, on a a service like this when we're speaking on a text that is typically an Advent text. Let me assure you that we're not violating any kind of binding code uh, by discussing the incarnation in February. In fact, I would say these doctrinal themes likely are better examined, possibly better examined without the distractions. And you know, the true humanity of Christ his virgin birth, his naming and his intent to save, his nearness to bless. I can tell you that four weeks of Advent are not enough to cover such massive themes. And so we're getting a jump on Advent 2024 today. So uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's look at Matthew chapter one, would you? Beginning with verse 18. The Bible says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. 
And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's quite a story, isn't it? This is quite a story. In fact, I don't know if there's any quite like this remarkable episode in the history of mankind. There is so much here. Uh, you look at this section of Scripture, you just think, is there, is there any possible way to even adequately open up the themes that are in view here in a way that would be helpful at all? So throughout our message today, I'm going to do my best to do, give you a good ex, uh, uh, exhaustive treatment of this text. But if I can just push this out in the middle of the room, and if you find your mind drifting at any point during the message, just pull this thought back down and consider this until you're able to get back on board, okay? Of all the things that we could consider from this passage, my hope for us today is that we would see and consider the great measures necessary to redeem us and that we would see the love of God beneath those measures. That's what I'm saying. As, as, throughout the, the message, just consider again the great measures, all that was necessary to redeem us because we need redeeming. All the measures that were necessary and then the great love beneath those measures. We're going to structure our time around the themes that are covered in the names that appear in this text. So we're going to take three of them. I think we got three here that we can deal with. We'll take them in the order that they are given to us in the text. The familiar word Christ, his proper name Jesus, and his descriptive name, Emmanuel. Christ, more title than name, his proper name, Jesus, the name given to Joseph as the name he would carry through life and into eternity. And thirdly, his descriptive name, which is defined for us in our text, the word Emmanuel. Now we've got a lot under each of those themes, but that'll give us at least something to hang our thoughts on. First, let us consider he is marvelous. He is marvelous as the Christ, as the promised deliverer. If you were with us last week, this theme was open to us and introduced as one of the primary focuses of the entire book. In fact, uh, you may recall, this is one of the primary themes, along with kingdom and along with fulfillment, which we see in this text as well. But this book, this book that we are just getting rolling in, is a book about the Messiah. And so this is language you're going to get really, really acquainted with as we work our way through us. What does it mean that he is the Christ? You know, I trust, maybe you don't, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. We tend to think of Jesus Christ, but it is a, it is a moniker, but it is a uh, it is instructive in terms of the office that he occupies. Jesus was the promised anointed deliverer. He is, I'm getting pressed so hard last week, he is the fulfillment of all that was promised in our Old Testament. So all that we receive from Eden forward until the arrival of the Lord Jesus, it is all about Jesus. Now we have some great stories there. There's a lot that we can learn. And, there's, and it's interesting, but, and, but all of it was meant to point us back to the promised Messiah, the Christ. And so we see the birth of the Messiah. Those of us, and it is all of us, who have lived our entire lives 
on this side of the incarnation are likely gonna have a hard time fully understanding and fully appreciating the longing that existed within the Hebrew nation for the coming of the Messiah, the desire to see him come. They knew that he was coming and they ached for his arrival. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will fill up all that we have seen over these years of preparation. I mentioned as far back as Eden, you know the very first gospel, the first glimmer that things are gonna be set right was, happens right on the heels of man's rebellion. Man defied God's very simple law and there was an attendant curse to that because God is righteous. It is only right that he would answer this rebellion. But in Genesis 3.15, we get an early illusion that God is gonna fix this and he's gonna fix it through an individual coming through the seed or the offspring of a woman. A singular male will bruise the serpent's head. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I will put enmity, God said, between you and the woman, speaking of the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The one whose heel was struck would crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise the head of Satan. And that opens for us this whole Old Testament narrative. God preserving that seed through the flood. And in time, he would establish a people. He would choose from a moon-worshiping Bedouin that nobody knew anything about, a man named Abram. He would establish a people. And from that, he promised, from you, all the nations of the world will be blessed through your offspring, Abraham. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel, Numbers 24. So Abram will have Isaac and Isaac will have Jacob and Jacob will have Judah and he will say of him and to him in prophecy, the scepter will not depart out of Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and unto him shall the obedience of the peoples be through you, Judah, through your line, Judah. There will come a Messiah. There will come a Christ. Marriages will form and babies will come. We saw that just such a, an emphasis last week. Marriages forming and, and improbable people involved in this remarkable story. And in time, Tamar is going to have a baby. And then we're going to have that whole dramatic story of Ruth. And Boaz will father Obed. And Obed will father Jesse. And Jesse's going to father a king. An imperfect king. But the Davidic line would further press the promise of a Messiah. And God would say to him, listen, David, listen, your house, 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. There is a king that will rise from your line whose reign will never end. Now that's a promise given across the Old Testament text. Story doesn't end. Goes from there, this 
whole rhythm of apostasy and restoration. The Hebrew people, there was nothing worthy in them. He didn't choose them because they were great among the peoples. They were little. There was nothing to them. This whole back and forth, defying God's law, being restored in his expressions of favor and covenant love continuum. They divided kingdom. We saw that again. Uh, uh, Judah and Israel and these good kings and bad kings. And the whole story of Hebrew history seems to be one of generation after generation of blood and rebellion and vacillation. And God keeps speaking. He just keeps speaking. He keeps bringing his word to bear. Through judges and through prophets and through kings but really they're they're still longing for a perfect prophet a perfect priest and a perfect king generation after generation Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel Hosea Jonah Amos just to name a few God's speaking through his prophets to his people until Malachi not a particularly prominent figure in Hebrew history, writes his prophecy, he sets down his quill, and then things go dark for 400 years. No word from God. No evidence of movement. This is a a place where people long to hear, and for 400 years, nothing in my mind, I was telling somebody the other day, this feels like to me the hold scene in Braveheart. I like musicals. I think that was mentioned last week. I, but Braveheart, that hold scene, when you know it, the bagpipes and the horse hooves and they're coming and the javelins are out and they're approaching and they're picking up steam and blue-faced Braveheart saying, hold, 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 hold. Now, that's kind of what I see here. Hold, hold to an expectant people who only have the promises of God to cling to. Hold. And then in a stroke of rhetorical understatement, Matthew says, this is how he was born. The birth of the Christ happened like this. Hold. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. You may see in your text there, this look, the ESV provides a, a note there that it may be that Jesus, the word there in our uh, opening Uh, Verse, verse 18, may be supplied there. So it could be more properly, this is how, this is, or the birth of the Christ happened like this, how they longed to see him. Now, I'm inclined to say those of us who live on this side of the incarnation can't fully appreciate, as I said a moment ago, just how they longed for this, but we are not unacquainted with the desire to see the Lord, right? We sang that today, didn't we? We get the idea of longing. The promise of a second advent is to us a sweet thing. As people who, from our text, need to be saved from our sin, 
We long for that. Didn't we sing, I love that last verse of come thou found. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I will see your lovely face. Don't you long for that? So we understand the desire, the ache to see and be with the Savior. So this is not a foreign theme, but it was acute among the people of God how they longed to see the Christ. So I understand I love Simeon, want to meet Simeon. Someday I want to walk around. I'm probably going to have dinner with Simeon. I love noble Simeon in Luke chapter 2 who spoke for an entire race of people when he took up the Christ child eight days into his life and prayed, Lord, you can now let me depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So as we look at this passage, let us not forget, this is Jesus filling up all that Old Testament text. He is the promised Christ. He is the Messiah. Let's take a moment, just work through the narrative itself. Now, the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let's just hit pause there. This is how it happened. This is how the birth of the Lord Jesus came about. We just say parenthetically, this is not when Jesus began to exist. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. He did not come into existence in the womb of Mary. Another gospel would say, one gospel that does not provide a birth narrative still gives us a pretty robust Christology when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him and without him. Christ was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. He would say later, verse 14, the Word became flesh, this is familiar to you, isn't it? You've heard this so much. Think about what I just said. The Word, the eternal God, the pre-existent second member of the Trinity, the one who has no origin, became a baby, took on flesh and dwelt among us, and with our eyes, John said, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Now, that's remarkable. This is the promised deliverer. So our story continues. By this point, word comes. At this, at this point, Mary has already visited Elizabeth, spent three months there. She returns to the childhood home of the Lord Jesus. She very, very well may be showing by this point. Obviously, Joseph has an interest in this, but there must have been a very difficult, very clumsy, very confusing encounter between Mary and her betrothed husband, Joseph, when she tried to explain to him, I'm expecting a baby, and I've never had sex with a man. How in the world are you going to explain that? I mean, that had to have been an awkward encounter. And Joseph, who is a sweet man, don't you see his sweetness in this? Can you imagine the perplexity? 
How confusing this must I mean, a, a betrothal, you probably know this, in, in, uh, in this economy, it was far more binding than a, an engagement. It was like an engagement. They, were not, they did not live together as husband and wife. They didn't share a bed as husband and wife. But it was binding. Here, to break off an engagement is unpleasant, very difficult, but it would not involve courts. And so this would. This would have involved some kind of legal binding movement and he determines he's just he doesn't want to shame her but he he also values holiness and he says the best thing I can do is just put her away and by the way if he had related to her violently a lot of people would not have thought twice about it but he determines to put her away or to to divorce her quietly. That's how the narrative unfolds. Now, in answer to the question, what do I do now? I've just been thinking about this. Matt and I talked about it a little bit over the, the last few days. We, we have the benefit of the full story, right? So you try to put yourself in Joseph's. It, it would be improbable and unfair to expect Joseph in the moment to make all these connections from Old Testament prophecy and be able to piece together what he's hearing in the moment from his beloved Mary. The promise that even through his lineage would come a virgin-born Messiah. We might, might be inclined. That, that, man, that's just hard math. That's hard math. So to, to put all that together, to, to do the, all that calculus in his head in the moment, if we say, hey, well, Joseph, who's going to bruise the serpent's head? See you, the woman. Well, what's the tribe that's going to produce the head crusher? Well, Judah. What tribe you belong to? Judah. Does your family fall in the Davidic lineage? Yeah. Don't you know Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin will conceive, have a child? His name should be called Emmanuel. The virgin will produce. You know that, don't you? Hey, where's your ancestral home, David? Or Joseph, Bethlehem. We can't really be expected that he's going to do all that math in his head in the moment. All he knows is that his fiance is expecting and that virgins don't have babies. So he determines to divorce her quietly. But after the decision is made, his mind is still muddled. You see that in our text. You, you know, Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 19, uh, Mary did some thinking. Uh, she, remember, she kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Luke 2 tells us, well, so did Joseph. Verse 20 says he considered these things. So even after the decision, he didn't have a decision to make. He'd already determined what he was going to do. But he considered these things. It just, his, his mind was occupied. I bet he wasn't sleeping well. I can't imagine he's interested in talking about anything else right now. I mean, the, the news that he has come to surely must have been at the front of his thinking all the time. And our text says, verse 19, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, again, I'll point you back to last week's message. Son, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
But that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to rear this child. It's not going to look anything like you. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want this to be so clear. I'm going to have, I'm going to, have to hit this twice in, the, in the, the message, but I want to make this so clear. Jesus was born of a virgin. You say, can you explain that? Nope, there are a lot of things I can't explain. Jesus was born of a virgin. No less than five direct or indirect allusions in this text point to the fact that Jesus' birth was unique and that there was no male involvement, not Joseph, not anybody else. There is emphasis, you know this in your study of Scripture, there is emphasis seen in repetition. And there is repetition that this child was not Joseph's, nor was he the result of Mary's unfaithfulness. Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary's account, Luke chapter 1. An angel also visited her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, that will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was born without the involvement of a human father. And one of the things I love about this, I know this is so clear as I looked at it this week. This, this truth is stated and not defended. It's just stated as fact. This is just the way it happened. No efforts at trying to unpack exactly why this was. Is there some explanation? Can we look at the language? No. That which was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. And this happened before they had come together as husband and wife. Now, this is vital. This is vital. In fact, our greatest need, any hope of redemption, rises or falls on this point right here. That God is, that the Lord Jesus was truly God and that he was truly man. We, we repeat this over and over again in our catechism. This is, the, this is the only kind of one who can redeem. He must be truly God. He must be truly man. So he was true man, but that is not all he was. He was likewise truly God. He was God-made man. And I'll tell you, theologians have pounded on this and, a, and a, a, a right Christology, an understanding of who Christ is, is vital on this theme. And we have benefited and have been so helped by men who have studied the word of God and, and have helped us with some very basic creeds. And the one I would point to, probably the seminal one as it relates to Christology would be the Chalcedonian Creed. Um, a very, very early Christian creed that sorted through some of the confusion. There were so many wild ideas about how Jesus' divinity was swallowed up in his humanity or vice versa. There was all, all these efforts to try to understand this. The simplest way to say it is he was true God and he was true man. The Chalcedonian Creed says, In the one person of Christ are perfectly united the divine nature and the human nature. And this union is without confusion, mixture, separation, or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. Each nature, human nature, divine nature, retains its own properties. This, this is me, not 
the Chalcedonian quote. I've, that's end of quote. Uh, each nature, his humanity and his deity, retains its own properties, and each is distinguished from the other. So wherever you go with this, establish this. His deity, that he was fully God, do all the worship that God is due. Entirely co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. His deity completely intact. And his true humanity, that he actually became a man. That absolutely must be intact as well. Now that's a lot to draw out of just a few verses of biblical text, but it is vital that we see his virgin birth as central to our understanding of our redemption. He never surrendered his place as the second member of the Trinity, yet for a time, he, and, and, and continuing into eternity, he took a human body. It's wild, isn't it? It's amazing. There was a time when Mary's body held and nourished Jesus. There was a time when he was physically sustained through an umbilical cord. This is, she, he was an actual human. Some of you right now are carrying babies in your body, and it's wild to think of that development over time. Yet Christ lived right there. There was a season of time where Jesus existed nowhere else in the universe but in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, let's take a breath. Not everything is a mystery, but some things are, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those things that are revealed are for us and for our children forever. Not everything's a mystery, but some things are. Let's just acknowledge that Mary's pregnancy, Jesus' conception, is a mystery. There's some involvement of the spirit, but we know that God is spirit, so it is not physical in nature. Somehow, the spirit of God formed a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we're comfortable saying as much as the scripture says and no more. And I'm comfortable for that. I've told you over the years, I, it's, I love being a B student because there is so much I'm happy to relegate to the areas of there, there's a wisdom I don't understand. There is a, there is not, I don't have to understand everything, and this is certainly a mystery that we do not fully get. But I get this. God is not constrained by anything he created. Isn't that true? I mean, just think about it. When, when, when liberal theologians try to untangle this mess and try to provide some explanation, God's not constrained by anything he made. I mean, whose idea was the marital union? God's. Whose idea was reproduction? God's. Whose idea was the sperm and the ovum? God's. Who came up with that? God's. God is not bound by anything or constrained by anything he himself created. That is his nature to create out of nothing. But in this case, it's not a creation because Jesus existed before time. But God can suspend or work around anything in his created order for he himself made it. He is the one who fashioned the mighty sequoia. He is the one who fashioned the crested dwarf iris, that little wildflower. He made the tiger shark, that brilliant display which you will see tonight. And some of you saw this morning when the sun comes up, the sun goes down. That nightly rhythm, entirely his idea. So I can tell you that this, as mysterious as it is, 
is not hard for him. To, to form a baby in the womb of a virgin, a God who can create the cosmos ex nihilo, will have no problem at all with that. We say, Ronnie, why, why does this matter? Why is this so important? Let me just give you three things. I rely, I'm relying heavily here on Grudem. This, I thought this was really helpful. Um, and I'm rewording it in my own words, but it's essentially his content. Why does the virgin birth matter? Number one, it demonstrates that only God can save. Only God can save. He will save his people from their sins. It is only God who can answer our great need. Number two, the virgin birth made possible the union of Christ's true deity and his true humanity, that which we were looking at just a moment ago. And third, this is something we have not mentioned yet, yet is essential to a right understanding of this. The virgin birth also ensures that Jesus could exist as an actual man, a true man, without the stain of original sin. If we're going to have a Christ who can save, he must be outside the stain of original corruption. So you know that your problem is larger than the things you do. You are by nature, all of us are, we are by nature sinners and we are by choice sinners. Yet that nature that is inherited and passed down from Adam did not exist in the Lord Jesus. Now it exists in us. That's why David would say in Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Romans 5, 12, therefore just as sin came into the world by one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That exists in you, that exists in me. That did not exist in the Lord Jesus. Grudem said, Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way that every other human being has descended from Adam. And this helps us understand why the legal guilt and moral corruption that belongs to all other human beings did not belong to Jesus. This is the kind of Savior we need. One who is truly God and one who is truly man. Is that clear enough? That's a lot. That's pretty... Wait, why don't we just take a break? This is a brief excursus, and just we'll dive back in. You know that Joseph is not the thrust of this passage. He's not the focus of this text and shouldn't be the focus of this message. But I did think it was interesting how he dealt with all this. You can imagine being overwhelmed by this news that, that his, the wife he anticipates sharing a life with is now carrying a baby. Again, he's not the focus, shouldn't be the focus of this message, but I think there's some details here in this account that are instructive and worth noting. They're in the text, so we'll reference them. I think his, his justice, specifically, he was a righteous man, and he was unwilling to put her to shame. So just kind of hang those two, uh, those are noble qualities. He was discreet. By the way, he also, when he eventually did take her as his wife, uh, he was not with her as a husband until the baby was delivered. So he was, he was discreet, he was kind, he was sensitive, he was responsive to God. 
He acted in submission and obedience to the Father, and he was disciplined. I think the nobility of the man, I'll reference this, make very little application, then we'll get back into our focus on Christology. The nobility of the man, specifically in relation to the perceived sin, it was not sin, the perceived sin of the one he loves. There were a few things that stood out to me as I, th- I reflected on it this week. One of the ways that his nobility is shown was by his humble discretion, his, his unwillingness to parade what he believed to be the sin of his beloved. Now just think of that heart disposition. He did not want to put her to shame. He did not want her swallowed up in scandal. He found a way to cover her shame. I think that's instructive to us, isn't it? It's likely something base and ugly in us that prompts us to speak freely and openly about the failures of others. So he endeavored to cover her offense. Second thing that stood out, it would require a messenger from God. It would require an angel from heaven to sort out what was happening. So remember, as it relates to your offender, you don't know what you don't know. And there was a lot he didn't know. So just remember, maybe there are aspects here that maybe you haven't fully considered. And the final thing, and this is super obvious, in this case, Joseph was wrong. He was just wrong. He was very sure that something improper had happened, something clearly improper had not happened, so he was wrong. So consider that well may be a possibility too when you are relating to someone with whom you are in dispute. Acknowledge you could be wrong. Remember that you don't know what you don't know and where you can cover their shame. Back to Jesus. We've seen him as the Christ. We've seen him as the Christ, the promised one. Now let us look at his name, Jesus, his, marvel, his marvelous work in saving us. Verse 20, as he considered, he's pondering these things, as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. It was a father's privilege to name a baby. In this culture and in many cultures, it was a father's privilege to name the baby. But in this case, he was kind of an adoptive father. He was not the actual father. So he had to be instructed from the actual father what we're going to call this baby. The baby's name was Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Three things of note here. What he does, he saves. Who he does it for, his people. And the nature of his work, what they are saved from. It is God alone who saves He saves his people, and it is the nature of his work to save them from their sin. So kind of the vital thing on that second point is that Jesus did not die to cover a bank of sin. This this is a theological distortion, a a, a soteriological salvation distortion 
that Jesus died for the sins of mankind and that when you and I come to Christ, we go and we withdraw our contribution to that big stack of sin and he forgives that. No, he actually paid an actual debt as an actual substitute for actual sinners. He came to save his people from their sins. This is what would permit him at the end of his life to say, it really is paid in full. That debt of these my people have been completely covered. As Paul Tripp says, Jesus did not purchase savability. He took names to the cross. He saved a people. You will call his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. Now the general expectation, you know this, among the Jewish people, they were looking for a Christ. They were looking for an anointed hero. They anticipated him being a political hero. They anticipated him overthrowing their oppressors, which had been so much of their story for so much of their history. So the saving they desired was not the saving that they received. They wanted them to overthrow Rome, but you don't need a God-man to topple a kingdom. Under the right leader, given the right uh, motivation and support, it's not conceivable that a strong leader could, in time, be disentangled even from Rome. You don't need a God-man to topple a kingdom. It may involve treachery and violence, but coups happen all the time. You, you can handle, there's a way to overthrow an oppressor, but you can't fix your sin. You can't fix your ultimate need. We will see through this book how Jesus upends our assumptions of what life is under this kingdom. What we need is a different king and a different kingdom. And our need, your need, mine, is to be delivered from a very particular kind of tyranny. We need to be saved from our sins. And I'm going to tell you, the gospel that is preached can go all kinds of different directions. I don't know what you think you need to be saved from. What you think you need. I need to be saved from loneliness. I need to be saved from poverty or depression or a passionless marriage. I need to be saved from poverty, from debt. No, you need to be saved from your sin. Now, all of, these, all of those things, the scripture has some, something to say there, but your great need is how are you gonna answer the issue that God had a law and you broke it? That God drew a line and you stepped across it. And how in the world does that ever get fixed? You can fix loneliness. You can fix poverty if you work hard enough. All things being equal, equal if you're disciplined. But you can't fix your sin. You need a savior. You need a savior. So I wonder, do you see that as your need? Do you? Do you see that as the deep soul level need of your heart? That you would be saved from sin, its dominion, its tyranny, and its consequence. Do you, do you see that as your great need? Or do you see it somehow as a fixed and unchangeable feature that you have to come to terms with, like your eye color? Or is it something you need to be saved from? 
I would say that is the message of the gospel. And until you get there, maybe Spurgeon said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And you have got to see your need to be freed from sin and its consequences. It is sin that cuts us off from God, the one we were made for, the one who is our true source of delight. It weakens us, it dulls us, it makes us stupid. There is a noetic effect on our mind as we sin. Its trajectory is always downward and always toward bondage. It confines us. It can come to dominate our limited minds. It is to defy the just rule of a God who has always done you only good. John Bunyan said of sin, it is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the content of his love. We need one who can save us from our sins. And if that's going to happen, as we have often said at Christmas time, he was going to have to become killable. God had to become killable. If he was going to save us, he had to become a man. If he was going to save his people from their sins. And it is precisely that that he did. He came as a man, lived an innocent life, filled up a credit of righteousness for his people, and then carried the penalty of their sin, our sin, to the cross and paid it in full. That is how Christ saves his people from their sins. And it would be this very issue that so vexed the Pharisees. They hated that he had, that felt like he had this kind of freedom. In Luke chapter five, remember there was a lame man. Lame man had good friends, really good friends, because they took him up on the roof, pulled off the thatching, and lowered this man down, because such a crowd, they couldn't get around him. You know, the people's crowded in there, couldn't find, couldn't get their crippled friend to Jesus. So they lowered him down, right in front of Jesus. I think that is pretty sweet and pretty tenacious. And laid him, set him in front of them. And what did Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's brazen. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the, the Pharisees, they don't say anything out loud, they think it. They think it in their heart, the Bible says they thought about it. And they said, this is blasphemy. Because only God can forgive sins. The Bible says that Jesus perceived in their thoughts he perceived what they were thinking, and he answered them and said, why do you question in your hearts? He's speaking to the Pharisees now in this crowded room, having just forgiven the sins of this lame man. Which is easier, he said, to say, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven you. But that you may know, listen to this, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked it up where he had been lying, went home glorifying God. So that God has power, Christ has power on earth to forgive sins. He is Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And y'all look here. That can't be done remotely. That can't be done from a distance. There, there's, there's no easy button that you could just 
hit reset. If there existed some kind of cosmic reset button that once hit would return all of creation and all of humanity to an Edenic state of innocence, what violence would this do to God's justice, his purity, his holiness, his impeccable goodness? If he just said, bummer, let's start over. There's no easy button. There's no, there's no cosmic reset button. If this is going to happen, God would have to come near. And in Christ, he did. He came near. So let us consider the last of the three names in our text. We have seen him as the Christ, the promised one, the fulfillment of all that Old Testament imagery. We've seen him as Jesus, that proper name, the one who will save his people from their sins. And now, Emmanuel, his marvelous in his readiness to come near. Verse 22, this is the first explicit fulfillment citation. And you're going to get really familiar with these over and over again, at least 10, that we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew. But this is one of those explicit statements where it said, this is the the reason it happened, and you remember this is one of our three dominant themes. In addition to the kingdom, in addition to Christ the Messiah, the theme of fulfillment. All this, verse 22, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's noteworthy to say this is the Lord speaking, yet he's speaking through his prophet, right? This is a word from God. This is not Isaiah's best idea. This is the Lord speaking through a prophet. This this took place to fill up, to fulfill The Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This was promised hundreds of years prior to our Lord's arrival. There's a particular context. It's worth noting. Let me just give you something parenthetical. So this would have happened in the 8th century B.C., in the 700s B.C., 733. The king at Judah, just get, get the background. The king in Judah, remember we've got a divided kingdom, The king of Judah was Ahaz, and he was a wicked king. He was not just wicked, he was sleazy. Uh, He used religious language and kind of talked in a way that would make him appear honorable, yet he was a wicked man. Uh, uh, Offered his sons as, um, as sacrifices. Not a good king whatsoever. Kingdom is divided, so you've got Judah to the south. Right above that is Israel, and right above that, further to the north, is Syria. Israel and Syria have formed an alliance. They determined to wipe Judah out. They're going to wipe out Ahaz and his kingdom and kind of engulf that in their own kingdom. Ahaz hears it and is troubled. The Bible tells us that his heart, this is an interesting picture, his heart shook like the trees of the forest in a windstorm. So Ahaz was frightened. But Isaiah, now by the way, this is, he's in the Davidic line. So, so God's going to keep his promises. So Isaiah comes to him and comforts him. Ahaz, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. He says it this way, it will not stand. What they are planning to do, it will not stand. 
In fact, God is not so merciful. He doesn't just assure him that they're gonna be fine. He is so merciful that he says to Ahaz, look, ask for a sign and I will give you a sign. You remember Ahaz falters. He said, I'm not gonna test the Lord. I'm not, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. He'd embraced foreign gods. He did not trust God. So he formed another alliance, the dominant uh, frightening, fearful people, the Assyrians, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, that's quite a name, isn't it? Uh, king of Assyria, he forms an alliance with them, and um, it turns out he does. He does sack Israel, he does sack Syria, but then he overruns Judah, and he, this, this alliance becomes tenuous at this point. But remember, it's in this context that God says through Isaiah, look, just ask me for a sign, Ahaz. I'll give you a sign. Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. God says through Isaiah, you don't want a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. This is a sign. This is a sign that will be under you. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. By the, the, the you there is plural. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give y'all, I'm, I'm gonna give the nation a sign that a deliverer will come someday. A deliverer will come. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Now a lot has been made about this and I'm gonna try to honor the text here just as Matthew felt no no effort to defend the doctrine. He just stated it without defending it. There has been a fair amount of ink spilled on the question of the language here that is used in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He uses the word Alma, one of the, one of the Hebrew words. Um, it's used seven times in the Old Testament, but it's never used in reference to a married woman. But there are more there's more precise language that could have been used to reference a virgin. But technically, this word Alma in the Hebrew text refers to a young woman of marriageable age. Um, and liberal theologians have, have suggested, but this was never disputed in church history until liberal theology began to uh, create uh, tension over this, uh, suggested that Jesus was not born of a virgin. He was just born of a woman of marriageable age. And uh, it doesn't, it's, it's a, a, a more amb ambiguous word. By the way, I think it's likely assumed if she was of marriageable age, she was a virgin. So, but, but that was the language that was in view there. What Matthew quotes is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and his translation is reflective of what surely must have been the understanding at the time. The word he uses is the word we would define as a virgin. But as is often the case in Old Testament prophecy, there is an immediate fulfillment of a more direct temporal fulfillment and a larger, fuller, more consummate fulfillment, which is seen in Christ. So God says through Isaiah, a child will be born. Then he goes on to say, and in just a few years, even before it is able to determine right for wrong, before it even understands right or wrong, the two nations that are bothering you, Ahaz, will cease to exist. And then the verses right after that, he said, look, he's going to eat curds. And wait, when, uh, he's not even, uh, uh, chapter 8, 
before he can even say my, my father or my mother, I will have taken care of this situation. Actually, he, he speaks a kind of pronouncement of judgment on Judah at this point. What you have asked for is going to create an enormous problem for you, Ahaz. So the verses right after this suggest an, an initial temporary fulfillment of a child through Isaiah, which I will attempt and uh, a pronunciation, Mayor Sha'al Hashbaz. This is not a terrorist. This was, uh, um, but he's referenced in Isaiah 8.8 8 as, as Emmanuel. So brilliantly, it seems our Lord used a word that could find its temporal initial fulfillment in the time of Ahaz, in the home of Isaiah, and at the same time find its final consummate fulfillment in Mary, who had never known a man. But when the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, by the time they wrote this out, they understood it as it was meant to understand. This was a virgin. The point was never their immediate predicament anyway. This crisis involving Syria, involving the Assyrians, involving Judah and Israel was to point to the larger concern. You need a savior. You need, you need a savior. And a savior will come and he will draw near. It's obvious that Matthew intends for the word to be taken as its root meaning virgin. This was, this was done in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. A virgin will conceive and have a child, and they, by the way, that's a, 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 the, this is a plural pronoun that does not appear in the Old Testament text. There is said you or he, you will. Um, but he's saying this is what they are going to call him. They're going to call him Emmanuel. Is this... A contradictory directive. Are we supposed to call him Jesus? Are we supposed to call him Emmanuel? It's not a direct naming per much. Is it Jesus or Emmanuel? It's not a contradictory directive. This plural pronoun, which is how it appears in the Greek, obviously points to someone other than Joseph. They are going to call him this, Joseph. This is the way people are going to talk about this boy. He is the with us God. He is the nearby God. He is God with us. They will call him Emmanuel. That's how people are going to see this promised son. And across church history, and even to our day, we have Augustine Will, Calvin Will, Spurgeon Will, and so will Jordan and Amy and Les and me and Matt. We're going to speak of him as the near God, the God who has come close. He is not only for us, but he is near us. Well, this book opens and closes with clear assertions of God's nearness. The identifying Christ as the Emmanuel and the promised certainty at the end of the book that as we go out on our commission to carry the gospel, he is with us and will never leave us. And right in the middle in chapter 18, when it becomes necessary to fight for the purity of the church and if necessary, put people out of the church, even there where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. His promised nearness anchors and secures our hope. And church, hear this. He is with you today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can tell you he is near. He is not absent. 
Ezekiel would look down that prophetic lens and of all these glorious names of God, he gives a new name, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there, that is present with you. And the glory of the eternal state is that he will be with us and we will be with him and we will ever live with the Lord. Well, there's a lot. That's a lot. We mustn't let the perplexities of this story obscure the greater marvel that God really did come near to us. Jesus is himself the final and decisive fulfillment of all that was promised. It must be received together, right? He is the promised deliverer. He is the one who saves. And he is the one who, in expression of covenant love, came near. If God is not for us, his nearness is no comfort. His nearness is a terror if he is not for us. So we receive them together. He is the promised deliverer. He is the God who saves. And he is the one who came to us. I'm giving you a lot today. May I just return us to our first concern. Of all the things that could occupy your mind today. Let us see and consider the great measures necessary to redeem us and see beyond that the love beneath those measures. Embedded in this story is a model of response. When Moses woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's response to God's word here helps us, and it is simple. Two things, belief and submission. He believed the word of God, and he submitted to God's just rule. He heard the word from God and believed it, and he submitted his life to the direction of God. And that is a word for all of us. Hey, did it cost him anything? I'd say so. But you know, submission and obedience probably is going to be costly. One of the brothers said on, on Wednesday night, speaking of a completely different matter, it is hard and it is good. This is hard and it is good. Yet this good man would take Jesus into his home. He would attend to his needs. He would care for him, ensure he was fed. He would provide housing and food and care for him. He would hold Jesus' hand as they navigated the marketplace or visited the temple. As a tradesman, we might assume that Jesus would have held the other end of the board as he cut it. And Jesus would likely learn that trade, for he was known as a carpenter himself, so probably spent his 20s working in a carpenter shop. This good man would take him into his home. And this Christ child would in time redeem his adoptive father. Answer the great need that Joseph himself had. The point is you can trust the Lord. Submission, obedience. Hear, believe, and submit. Years later, his mom, Joseph may be with the Lord at this point. Mom speaks to an embarrassed wine team at the wedding who hadn't thought particularly well, planned ahead. And she said to him, Whatever he says to you, do it. So what she said to them, I now say to you. Whatever he says to you, 
do it. Father, we want that to be our heart disposition. As a God who would express your covenant love, bringing the one perfect sacrifice, the God-man, that he would save his people from their sins, that he would not remain distant from us, though he would have been completely in his rights to do so, you drew near. And so we praise you for your mercy. Lord, we want our hearts to be responsive in worship, that our lives are yours. Our lives are yours. And whatever you say to us, we want our whole inclination to be ready and joyful submission. For you alone are good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.